You'll open your Bibles this morning to the book of Proverbs, chapter 18. We'll be mostly in verse 24 today, although we're going to cover Proverbs 18 and 19. And just generally today, I'm going to attempt to compress everything Proverbs says about friendship and synthesize that with everything the Bible says about friendship into this message. And really, Proverbs 18.24 is an excellent verse to give us the opportunity to see kind of more or less the main themes of friendship in the entire Bible. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So there are, I think, two main ideas in the book of Proverbs and actually in all of Scripture about friendship. And the first one is is that fair-weather friendship is a real phenomenon, and it's really painful. And we see that at the beginning of this verse. And this is one of the two sort of pillars of friendship discussion, both in the book of Proverbs and in the whole Scriptures. Fair-weather friendship is a real phenomenon and really painful. And number two, the second idea about friendship that we see in the scriptures over and over again is that true friendship is more or less defined by steadfastness or endurance. So those are probably the two biggest ideas in the Bible and certainly in the book of Proverbs about friendship. Now, we can go through all of the different Proverbs about friendship, and one of the questions we're forced to kind of answer early on is, how do we read the data? How do we read the data that is descriptive and not prescriptive? And let me explain to you what I mean by that. There are some proverbs that are prescriptive when it comes to discussing friendship. For instance, Proverbs 22, 24 through 25. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Or Proverbs 13.20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffer harm. These are what you'd call prescriptive because it's really obvious what they're telling us to do. In the first one, they're telling us that the proverb is telling us don't, don't become close friends with a man given to anger, lest you learn his ways. And then Proverbs 13 is telling us to seek out friends that are wise and to avoid becoming a companion of fools. So these are, these are proverbs about friendship that fall into the prescriptive category. I think the idea is when you read them, you're not left wondering, like, how do I apply this? Most of the proverbs related to friendship are descriptive. They just tell us about something, and when you read those, you're sort of left wondering, how should I apply this? For instance, um, our proverb today is a descriptive proverb. A man of many companions can come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Or uh, Proverbs 17, 17, you know, a, a, a close friend, a brother is born for adversity. These, these are descriptions of the phenomena of friendship, but what am I supposed to do with that? And there are some Proverbs that speak negatively about friendship, but they're also descriptive. For instance, Proverbs 19.4, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. That's describing something that happens. 
What am I supposed to do with these kinds of Proverbs, the ones that don't tell me explicitly what to do? Well, I think there are basically two options. They're either telling us about this stuff because they're telling us sort of the kinds of friendships to seek and curate in our lives, or they're telling us about this stuff so that we are instructed on what kind of friends we should and should not be. Does that make sense? Like those are the kind of our two options. Either these descriptions of the phenomena of friendship are telling us, hey, these are the people you should seek, these are the people you should avoid, or they're more aspirational and they're telling us how we should be. Now, I think these proverbs that are descriptive are given to us for the sake of being good friends and not for the sake of seeking good friends. I think there are other proverbs that tell us to seek good friends, but there's this whole chunk of them that are just telling us about the triumphs and tragedies within friendship. And I think those descriptive proverbs, the way to apply those that makes the most sense given all of the biblical data is that these are to be applied first to ourselves. We shouldn't use all of the proverbs as sort of a shopping list of red flags and green flags for friends we encounter and accept, we should really use it as a way of guiding who we are and who we're becoming so that we can be the positive things we see in these descriptions and we can avoid becoming the negative things we see in these descriptions. I mean, the secondary utility would be like something terrible happens to you and some friends start treating you differently. Well, yeah, you can go to these descriptions and sort of maybe understand what's happening. It's like, well, maybe I have some fair weather friends. But the main utility of these seems to be to help you and I aspire to becoming the kind of people who are the one who sticks closer than a brother, the one who is born for adversity, and so on and so forth. I think there's a lot of reasons that that makes sense, and one of them is, is that as Christ followers, God expects us to commit to certain behaviors, and if you look at what those behaviors are, they're all basically building blocks of friendship. Let's say there are, and there are probably more than this, but let's say there are three basic building blocks of friendship in the Bible. Love, loyalty, and forgiveness. Love, loyalty, and forgiveness. Let's say that those are three of the main things a real friendship must have. Well, these are things that we are commanded to do, right? These are things that we're commanded to do. The whole law is summarized by loving God with all your heart and then what? Loving your neighbor as yourself. We are called to be loving to others. In 1 John 4.20, he writes, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, does not love, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So Christians are called to love. Love's a basic building block of friendship. Christians are called to loyalty. This question of, of, am I supposed to use these Proverbs to seek quality friendships, or am I supposed to use these Proverbs to become a quality friend? That's a very ancient question. The Greeks, in their philosophy, took almost no subject as seriously as they took the subject of friendship. It's a serious theme that runs throughout all classical Greek philosophy. Epicurus, 300 BC or so, founder of, wait for it, Epicureanism, postulated that we should all seek friendships 
that would come and visit us when we were sick and come and visit us if we were ever thrown into prison. He says, essentially, we should all aspire to find friends who will sit with us at our bedside when we are sick and who would come and visit us if we were somehow imprisoned. Many years later, actually right around the time of Christ or shortly thereafter, Seneca, who was a Stoic philosopher, which was, is a school in relative opposition to Epicureanism, Seneca said, no, no, we should aspire to be the kind of people who sit with others when they're sick and visit others in prison. And we find, as we often do, that Stoicism is closer to the kingdom than Epicureanism because Jesus himself in Matthew 25, using the very same categories brought forth by Epicurus, says the following. When he is, he, in, in, in Matthew 25, he's talking about the judgment and he's saying there's gonna be a separation of sheeps and goats. And then he says, and this is the terms of the separation. And he says to those who are sheep, to those who wind up being admitted into eternal joy, he says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Bit of an overgeneralization, but fairly spot on. God is not evaluating your character mostly by the friends you keep, but mostly by the friends you are. And so Jesus certainly agrees with the idea expressed by Seneca, although I think Seneca said it after Jesus. So love is a essential building block of of, of friendship. We're called to love as Christians. Loyalty is an essential building block of friendship. We're called to be loyal to one another as Christians. And the third building block that I mentioned is perhaps the most essential, and that is forgiveness. I will tell you this, and I think you can take this to the bank. I would say you honestly don't know whether you have a fair-weather friend or a true friend until you have sinned against them. I don't think that you can know whether you have a real friendship until real forgiveness has been required. It's a fundamental building block of friendship. And of course, Jesus commands us very explicitly in Matthew 6 that we as believers, receivers of grace, must forgive others. So what I'm trying to put forth to you is I want you to start seeing friendship as a duty rather than a good to be consumed, a charge to keep rather than a good to be consumed. And one of the first arguments I've made is essentially that all of the basic building blocks of friendship are indeed required of you if you are a disciple of Jesus. There's a second reason why I think we have to see friendship primarily as responsibility we have to discharge rather than as something we should be seeking to receive from others. And that is simply this. It isn't clear to me that the pleasures of friendship outweigh the potential pains. So if this is simply about consuming a good in the world, I think you might want to just stay out of this store. The truth is, is that lots of friendships go well and never go south, but a lot of the Proverbs and a lot of Scripture, one of the main lessons going all the way through the Gospels with Jesus at the cross is that you will eventually, you are likely to eventually experience 
the extreme pain of disloyalty and betrayal. And when you experience that, I don't think you would be wrong for asking, is friendship itself worth the potential heartbreak? Is friendship worth the risk? And I would say that if the only thing to gain out of friendship is stuff that you gain as a byproduct of the friendship, then I would say probably not. I actually think most people are not engaged in biblical friendship because they know this. They're engaged in biblical courtesy. They're engaged in biblical affiliation. But they avoid biblical friendship because they know it is very likely a path to a broken heart. And so if friendship is presented to us constantly as this thing we should seek because it's good for us, because it's a blessing to us, and certainly the Bible talks about that, but if that's the main reason, I think the first time you're punched in the face, I think the first time you're betrayed, I think the first time you're abandoned, you will wind up like so many have, permanently once bit and twice shy. And you will wind up saying, it's just not worth it. And indeed, it may not be worth it if it's simply a consumable product that you choose or not choose. I think it's necessary, since the Bible commands us to be friends and pursue friendships, I think it's necessary to see friendship as a kind of duty. I mean, I can't overstate how profound the Bibles are, or not how, how persistent the Bible is in warning us about the calamity associated with loving someone. This is fundamental to the Bible's story. In Proverbs, one of the most, uh, one of the closest words for friendship, we're going to see in a minute, there's, there's a bunch of different words. In Proverbs, one of the closest words for friendship is a word allup, A-L-L-U-P. It is one of the closest words. In fact, it sort of means bosom companion. And if you're tall, you have a lot of bosom companions. But uh, Derek, Kidney, Derek Kidner writes uh, about this word. It happens to be the strongest term for a friend. And it usually occurs in the Old Testament in situations of betrayal or estrangement. Right? So... There's a psalm, uh, where, where, well, there's multiple psalms where David uses this term allop, and they're all surrounding being betrayed and heartbroken. And so if, if you are thinking of friendship as a thing that's like good for you and go out to get, I think you're missing, I think you're missing a giant column of biblical data saying, yeah, yeah, it's, it's good, it's also dangerous. And many times you think that you've got a friend and you wind up having what Proverbs is very consistent in saying would be a fair weather friend. So pursuing friendship has to be deeper than what it can, the good it can bring to us. And I would submit to you, it's just a duty. It's just a charge to keep consistent with simply being a Christ follower. There's just such a likelihood. The next chapter in Proverbs 19, I read 19.4, but there's just such a likelihood that, that many of your friendships will end in a state that you now, that you will eventually decide was a fair weather state. Uh, Proverbs 19.6, many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. Proverbs 19.7, all a poor man's brothers hate him, 
how much more do his friends go far from him? Proverbs uh, 18.24, a man of many companions can come to ruin. And these Proverbs are saying explicitly that someone will have a lot of friends when they have a lot to offer. And then when they go into a period of time when they have less to offer, many of those friends will desert them. And we would not uh, be served well if we see this as mostly about wealth. Because the truth is, is that there are all sorts of friendships that are transactional in nature. It's just not money. It's affirmation. Uh, there, there can be scratch my back and I scratch yours friendships. There can be hear me out and I'll hear you out friendships. One of the classical uh, philosophical categories that the philosophers use to describe one kind of friendship is the intellectual friendship. And an intellectual friendship is transactional. It's simply this. You bring interesting things to me, and I bring interesting things to you, and we grow in our understanding of things. It's like, well, that sounds fun. I mean, I love that, right? But essentially what's going on there is you're just a tribe of, of knowledge hunters, and your value to that tribe is assigned to whether you can put information into the collective meat locker. And one day you may not be able to do that. Or one day you might veer off of the cultural orthodoxy and come up with an idea that is simply beyond the pale. And you're kicked out of the tribe. You're canceled from the tribe. So it seems to me that it's like, well, there has to be a deeper reason for friendship than just the good it can bring to us. And I think the deeper reason is, is that it's a duty assigned to us by God as an expression of our relationship with God. It's the second part of the law. Love God with all of our being and love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, you might be thinking, is duty-driven friendship really enough for us? Is, is duty-driven friendship really enough? I can anticipate someone feeling as if they would not want a friend who is their friend to say, I am your friend because God requires me to be your friend. But I would submit to you that you are full of yourself, you are a vain person, and you don't understand the gospel. You want, this is, this is the tragedy of teenagers, and some people never outgrow it. They look at their parents and say, you're my friend because you have to be. I want friends who like me because of who I am. You are not enough to be liked. You are not enough to be liked. You are capable of presenting a veneer and will one day wonder why you feel so lonely and unknown. I would submit to you that it is actually perfectly acceptable. I don't think anyone would actually say it, but it's actually it's perfectly acceptable for someone to say, I will be your friend because God commands it of me. And here's why I think that. Because what if the person actually did it? What if they loved you as unto the Lord? What if they sought you out as unto the Lord? What if they cared for you as if they were doing it to the Lord? What if they forgave you because the Lord had forgiven them? I think you'd have a really blessed friendship. And some days, this is what marriage is, my friends. I will love you because God told me I have to. And it is on the basis of that commitment that actual friendship emerges. Is duty-driven friendship enough? It certainly is enough. Jesus did not come to save you because he found you worthy 
He did not come to save you because he thought you'd be a nice addition to his living room conversation in heaven. Jesus came to save you because God told him to. And that seems to be working out all right as well. So I think the idea of a duty-driven friendship is actually mostly biblical, although I think that it would be stupid to just constantly tell your wife, I love you because God's forcing me to. I I think God would say, uh, you're not loving her by saying that, right? Now, there seems to be a lot of compelling evidence that friendship really should be seen less as a consumable good and more as a charge to keep, but let me give you the one piece of evidence that's really the only evidence we need, and that is simply, as I mentioned a moment ago, this is what Jesus did. (laughs) There's our evidence. When we read Proverbs 17, 17, and it says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And we read Proverbs 18, 24, and it says, many a man's A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This suits me just fine, to find that Jesus is that friend for me, and that all of my human friends are friends with me because Jesus has been that friend to them. Do you really believe you have enough just in you to warrant someone else's lifetime love? Do you? Do you honestly believe that? Please don't believe that. Please don't believe that. Do you honestly believe that you, in you, in the resources that you bring to the table, have enough to warrant someone else's lifetime loyalty or to warrant someone else's forgiveness? You don't. You don't. And Jesus didn't see it that way. He said, I come because God told me to. I come to do the will of the Father. And so I think the way that I would summarize all this is to say this. Jesus did not come to consume human friendships. He came to create human friendships. And this is the footing you and I should be on when it comes to the topic of friendships. We need to stop asking who will be my friend and start asking whose friend can I be. We need to be creators and not consumers of friendships. And if we are living out our Christian faith with love and loyalty and forgiveness, there will be no shortage of people that we can love and be loyal to and forgive. Now, I want to go in a little bit further and sort of synthesize all of the data in Proverbs about friendship and the way we see Jesus engaging in friendship. The first one I've established, and that is there's a a duty-driven thing that Jesus is doing. It, it, it blooms into more than that, and it was never only that. But that is an essential part of it. Number two, I want you to see this, that Jesus held friendships at different levels of closeness. Jesus held friendships at different levels of closeness. So uh, the postmodern perspective on love in which you were raised is all wrong. Postmodernism hates levels and hierarchies and labels. And so they would say that if you are engaged in one level of closeness with one person and another level of closeness with another person, that you are committing violence. The, the most dominant, well, maybe one of the two most dominant postmodern philosophers was a man named Derrida. And he says explicitly, I've read him, he says explicitly, 
that any sort of leveling, any sort of labeling, any sort of restricting access to one that isn't given to the other is violence. And if you're wondering where free love emerged from in the 1960s, it emerged from this. And if you're wondering why we use the word besties too much, it emerges from this. There's this postmodern hatred of boundaries in general, a love of chaos, a hatred of boundaries, and even the hatred of boundaries within relationships to suggest that you would have friends that are this close here, this close here, this close here. And I want to draw your attention to the fact that Proverbs uses a number of different terms, and they all don't mean the same thing. There's a companion, there's a neighbor, there's a friend, there's a brother. Our life is not supposed to be boundaryless without any borders, simply accepting everybody and everything and all the time. That's If you're struggling to see Christian love with boundaries, I can tell you where that came from. You were raised in a postmodern culture. And that postmodern culture has been trying very hard to eliminate boundaries. If you're wondering where all this promiscuity comes from, if you're wondering what an orgy's about, because I know we're all wondering that, there are fundamental, philosophical, intellectual, spiritual reasons for what you're seeing in the world today. I just want to draw your attention. It's not a super important point. I just want to draw your attention to understand that there will be this pressure against you so that you're sort of forced to love everyone in all the ways at all the times. And what that does, I've seen it to Christians my whole life, you stop loving people who just need this much love. You look at someone who is really broken and they're not a part of your life. They're not a part of your family. They're probably not even a part of your church. You look at someone who's really broken and instead of giving them this much, and knowing, like, that's good enough. I gave them a cup of water in Jesus' name. If you don't know how to do the boundaries thing, you'll avoid them entirely. When really, honestly, like, if we all just did this much, right? So it's important to see that this is true of Jesus, and I think that there's reason for that. Jesus uh, was friends with the woman at the well. I'll talk about that again in a moment. He was friends with Zacchaeus, but not the same kind of friends that he was with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Jesus had 12 disciples, but he had three of the inner core, and he had one whom he beloved, right? And so why, why is this happening with Jesus? Well, I think it's an expression of his humanity. I think when Jesus chose to enter time-space, he chose to enter into a world of limitations. And this world of limitations meant a limited amount of emotional energy, a limited amount of physical energy. I think certainly the spirit was working through him consistently to help him achieve and perform at a level higher than the average human. But the idea that I think we can unpack by noticing that even Jesus operated in levels of friendships is that it is, as a human being, impossible to be everything for everybody. And I think that's a point worth noting. I don't want to belabor it. I think it's a point worth unpacking maybe sometime down the road. The main point I want us to see this morning is that Jesus's friendships were fueled, Jesus's human friendships were fueled by his friendship with the Father. Jesus's human friendships were fueled by his friendship with the Father. Uh, there's this moment where Jesus goes out of his way to go to Samaria and sit in a certain spot where he would meet 
a, a woman who has no friends. Um, she has no husband. She also has no friends. This is Im- impacted, or I- this is uh, implicit in the story. And Jesus is there, and he spends time with her, important time, valuable time, time that could have been spent on a whole lot of other things. And he is friendly to her. And I think you could say he is, he is his, her friend, but in appropriate ways with boundaries and so on and so forth. But the point is, is that after that, you know, he skipped lunch. He'd probably skipped breakfast. He had been very busy just up to this point. The first thing the disciples think when they see Jesus is, oh my goodness, you haven't eaten at all. And he says, what? He says, I have food that you know not of. And the disciples are like, Lunchables, right? You packed a Lunchable. You packed a Lunchable in your bag, didn't you? Is it the pizza kind? I hate those. Anyway, no. They're like, what are you talking about? You have food that you know not of. He says, my, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And so what Jesus was always doing was he was extending the depth and richness and beauty of the friendship he had with the Father out into the human world. He was just giving, he was, he was living on the fuel of his friendship with the Father and extending that into other people. Now, you can, you can this is going to sound super heretical, you can overdo Jesus talk a little bit in sermons in this respect. It's easy for you as a listener to think, but that was Jesus, you know, like, I don't, I'm not even in the same league, you know, what's going on here? You know, this is actually this idea of if you're a good friend with God, you'll be a good friend to others. This is just, first of all, it's in the greatest commandment, love God and then love your neighbor, but it's actually just replete in a number of our Bible heroes' stories. The closer someone is to God, the better a friend they are. And I'm just going to pick three of the big ones. Three where it's explicitly mentioned in the Old Testament that these men were friends with God. Um, Don't say it out loud, but try to think. Who in the Bible was explicitly named a friend with God? So you've got three, uh, two explicit, one a little less explicit but implicit. And the first one is Abraham. And the second one is Moses. And the third one is David. So let's use these three men as our examples. These three men are known in the Bible as having an exceptional friendship with God. The Old Testament says that Moses, there's never been anyone like, that was friends with God like Moses was friends with God. Like, well, one guy I know. Abraham was a friend of God, but I think what gets lost in the story is he is an exceptional friend to his nephew Lot. The whole time he is deferring to Lot, when their resources were limited and they had to split up, he gives Lot the preferential pick, even though Lot's younger than him. When Lot gets kidnapped, Abram goes and rescues him. So Abraham was a friend with God, and he also just so happened to be a really good friend. Moses was described, as I mentioned, as a friend of God. And I think one of the things that gets lost as you're reading Moses' story is how good of a friend he was to Israel. I think it's in Deuteronomy 9. I just read it this week. After Moses discovers that Israel has sinned with the golden calf, Moses says, I went to the mountain and I fasted and prayed for 40 days for you. 
There's a moment, uh, at least one, I think maybe two, where God says to Moses, I'll just destroy them. And Moses says, no, no, no. No one was worse to Moses than the Israelites. They were ungrateful. They were accusatory. They, they always claimed, they always played power games with him, claiming that this position of leadership he was in was undeserved and that anyone could do it and so on and so forth. They were ungrateful for all the miracles that God performed. Moses took exceptional risks to get them out of Egypt. And think about personally insulting it was for them to long to be back in Egypt when he, he, Moses, had done so much and risked so much, so many encounters, potentially fatal encounters with Pharaoh, he had risked so much. His whole life was about getting them out, and they would constantly disrespect him. And time and time again, you see Moses being a faithful friend. It's like, how does a man like Moses, or how does a man like Paul, who deals with the Corinthian ingratitude, how, does he, how is he such a good friend? It's not a reciprocated friendship. That's not the key. He's not getting anything out of it. That's not the key. These men had a friendship with God that fueled their human friendships. I know uh, Blaise Pascal once said that all of the problems in the world are related to one simple thing, and that is a man's inability to sit alone by himself in a room. And of course, what he meant by that was alone with God. Your capacities for friendship are only as real as your friendship with God is real. Go sit in a room alone with God and see what comes up. And what comes up there, what would keep you from doing that, what would keep you from sitting still, what's coming up in that moment alone with God is exactly what's going to sabotage your friendships. So we see Abraham, a friend with God. He's also a really good friend a lot. We see Moses, a friend with God and a really good friend to Israel. David is described as a man after God's own heart. And he exhibits heroic friendship at a number of levels. You know, in, in many respects, if you'll read through 1 Samuel, you'll find that Saul, the king, had one friend. And it was the one he was trying to kill. The one person who wanted the best for Saul. The one person who prayed for him, the one person who sought his good was the one person who kept trying to kill him. And then after Saul, or actually in the midst of Saul, there is his friendship with Jonathan, which might be, humanly speaking, top two, top three friendships described in the Bible. Years later, after they are both dead, David is sitting in his peaceful kingdom, fully established with all of the wealth in the world, and voluntarily, of his own heart, he wonders, is there anyone left in the house of Saul and David that I can show kindness to? I believe that the Hebrew, and, and I need to look this up for sure, I'll talk about it more in a moment, but I believe the Hebrew there is kesed, which I'll, I'll talk about more in a moment. Is there anyone I can show kindness to from the house of David, or of Jonathan, and he finds out that Jonathan had had a son who was crippled, who was born crippled, named Mephibosheth. And he's his only surviving son. And it's quite unusual in ancient royal times to bring a former king's heir into your throne room. 
You've brought competition to the table. You've brought rivalry. And there are going to be lots of subjects who are still loyal to the last guy and so on and so forth. So you just don't do this. It gets very messy and stupid. It's sort of like if a president were to retain the chief of staff from the previous administration or something like that. But he brings Mephibosheth in and he says to him, every, all the land, all the possessions, everything that your people had, under David, under Jonathan, and under Saul. It's all yours. It's all restored to you. And then he says this, you will always eat at my table. Now, what's going on here? Well, it's supporting this whole idea as we're talking about a friendship, friendship being a charge to keep, a duty to discharge. And that is, how do I do that? If you will be friends with God, you will be friends with others. And as John says in 1 John 4.20, if you're not friends with others, don't don't deceive yourself into thinking you're friends with God. Now, Jesus is a better friend to us using the same math as Abraham and Moses and David. Jesus is an even better friend to us because, why? He was an even better friend to the Father. Abraham rescued his nephew. Jesus is a far greater rescuer. Moses interceded for Israel. Jesus is a far greater intercessor. David welcomes the crippled son of his enemy to his table. Jesus has done that times a billion, and it's a better table. And so in some very real way, we can add all this up and say the reason why Jesus is the fulfillment of Proverbs 1770 and the, the fulfillment of Proverbs 1824, the reason why Jesus is such a good friend to us is simply because his friendship with the Father is overflowing on us at all times. Now, if we want to follow Jesus, I think the idea is simple. We must turn from primarily thinking of ourselves as consumers of friendship and follow Jesus down this other path where we become creators of friendships. Now, of course, Jesus was a consumer of one friendship, and this is what I'm telling you to do. He was a consumer of a friendship with the Father. I want you to go out in the world and be a friend, not simply seek friends. I want you to go out and create friendships. I want you to go out and, and wield love and loyalty and forgiveness and make friends. Be a friend. I don't want you to be a friendship consumer at this level, but I do want you to be a friendship consumer at this level. This is where it all starts, and this is where it's all powered. Now, looking back at this passage in Proverbs 18.24, let's read it one more time and follow the line of thought that comes from the title, How to Be a Sticky Friend. Proverbs 18.24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We've discharged this consumeristic notion from this passage where we are no longer looking at this passage and thinking, I hope I have a friend like that. Do I have a friend like that? Are any of my friends going to weather the next storm? We've, we're done looking for friends right now. Now we're going to be a friend. We're going to be this friend. How do we become friends who stick closer than a brother? Well, stickiness, stick, it's just the word for cleave or fastened. There's a passage in... I think it's Leviticus that describes the cherubim in the temple and their wings are welded together. And the word for weld there is the same word that we have here. 
It's this idea of closeness, and then it's the idea of steadfastness. Those are the two kind of concepts associated with the word stick. Now, in terms of closeness, it would be closeness appropriate to the kind of relationship that it is. But it always implies some degree of vulnerability. And again, maybe you would look and you'd say, I don't know if I have anyone in my life who will stick closer to me than a brother. I don't know if I have anyone in my life who wouldn't run if I did the worst thing possible or if the worst thing possible happened to me. Well, honestly, you might only have God in that role, but wouldn't it be nice if someone else had you? Wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be preferable if you became that to someone else? And by the way, let me just share a little secret with you. If every single person in this room decided to be this person, if we followed Romans 12 and we aim to outdo one another in showing honor, none of us would be lacking in friends. So this idea of closeness is associated. And then there's this idea of steadfastness, of stickiness, of endurance. A few years ago, uh, a guy named Paul Miller wrote a book that I absolutely love called The Loving Life. And it's more or less a commentary on the book of Ruth. And then within that commentary is really a whole treatment on this Hebrew word hesed, which is the word for steadfast love, more or less. And whenever Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all time and a brother is born for adversity, or there is a friend who sticks closer to the bro- than a brother, we're talking about this hesed idea, this, this idea of steadfast loyalty. It's sometimes expressed of God. For instance, there's a beautiful verse in Isaiah 54 that says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. That steadfast love, that's hesed. But there are other times in the Bible when this word is used between friends. And it's what he's talking about is the love that Ruth displayed to Naomi. This hesed friendship is what you and I should aspire, not just simply to receive, but to give. And the reason why I bring Paul Miller's book up is he has the most beautiful definition of everything we're talking about right now when he defines hesed love as love without an exit strategy. Love without an exit strategy. If you're understanding what marriage is, it's love without an exit strategy. If you're understanding, if you want to understand what biblical friendship is, it's love without an exit strategy. It is love, loyal love, and forgiving love. Now, love that sticks, I'm just going to end with a moment of application, is I think probably we can talk about four things, three or four things that are easily, that easily come in between friends. And the first one would be, let's aspire to be friends who stick with others in spite of life's busyness and demands. It is so easy to simply forget your friends. It is so easy to fail to do the necessary maintenance, the the necessary upkeep of a friendship. The busier you are, the harder it is to maintain these friendships. Now, I don't know about you. But I know, <laughs> I know for me, there's a couple people I've got to call as a result of thinking about this. 
And I don't have to call and confess some great sin or anything like that. I just need to go back to the work of seeking them, pursuing them, befriending them. And on the other hand, I have the struggle that all of you have, and that is I don't have unlimited time. And I don't know how many people to pursue and, and so on and so forth. But I know that the Lord has laid a few people on my heart that simply just need to hear from me. And I wonder if he would do that for you as well. Simply just resisting the likelihood that life's busyness and the demands in life or new seasons of life can cause you to neglect a friend. It's like maybe it's just time for a text. Maybe it's just time for a phone call or something. Now, there's another thing that happens, and this is spelled out explicitly in Proverbs often. That's just, just the potential of being separated because of hardship and difficulty. You know, if you feel like someone you know is going through a hard time and you feel totally inadequate to be their friend in this hard time, just tell them that and just keep talking to them. You may be totally inadequate. There's a high likelihood of it. This is the anti-self-esteem church. <laughs> um, you may be fully inadequate, but you can be a friend, and, and, and anyone that's ever gone through a really devastating time knows that distance and loneliness is, is not the thing you want. And so don't let hardships separate you from other people. But the number one thing that we know separates us from each other and from God is sin. And we need to learn how to stick with one another, even through sin. One of the great heartbreaks I've had as a pastor over the years is I've seen people who were associates for a long period of time call themselves friends. And then in some really, honestly, usually relatively minor way, one sins against the other. And it's like at that moment, in my understanding of biblical friendship, they have the opportunity to cross the bridge over into real friendship if they will just give and experience grace. But so often I see just those little sins separate friends. And they just had the moment to really become friends. And they didn't take up Jesus's glorious offer to give us grace and give us grace to share with others. Proverbs 18, 19 talks about that problem. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. And a quarreling, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. So one of the fundamental things that you must have if you want to stick with someone is you must give and receive forgiveness. You know, Peter says to Jesus, I wonder how many times Peter replayed this one. How many times must I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Must I forgive him seven times? And Jesus says, I tell you not seven, but 77 times. That's an infinite number symbolically. You know who was so grateful for the rest of his life that Jesus believed that? Peter was. Peter was. Peter is so grateful that that was Jesus' perspective. That forgiveness is actually just a fundamental building block of friendship. Now, let's pivot into communion by going back to old Mephibosheth, the cripple, sitting at David's royal table. The word Mephibosheth, the name, now this is how I picture this happening. 
Mephibosheth is born, and back then, and you could trace this through the scriptures, if you were born severely disabled, you were thought to be cursed. Something terrible had happened to you, probably. There was some defect in your soul, and God was judging you for your disability. And so you need to picture old Mephibosheth being born, visibly crippled, this little baby, visibly crippled. And listen to what they name him. What does Mephibosheth mean? It means disabled human soul. It's a little on the nose, you know. And so what David is doing is just a complete prefigurement of what Jesus would do for us. What David is doing is he is taking the one who is named disabled human soul and showering him with love and riches and security. And David acting not only as the good friend that he was, but as a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, is pointing us to the one, Jesus, who would actually come for actual disabled human souls. That's, that's you and me. And he would welcome us, though we are sons of his enemy's line, sons of disobedience. He would welcome us and set us at the table that he has prepared for us. And so that's what's happening today. That's what we do. We come as Mephibosheth's redeemed and welcomed to the table, not because we're deserving, not because our soul is spotless, not because we've had a really great week, but because Jesus wants to be our friend. And he has made that friendship possible by giving himself up for us. That word alap, I mentioned it earlier, it means bosom companion. There's another reference to the table buried into that idea. When, when the disciples sat at the table, Jesus is obviously performing the Lord's Supper in real space time. And so there is one space at Jesus' bosom, at Jesus' chest. And it was considered the most uh, affectionate spot to sit. This is, the, this is where you would sit if you were the most beloved. And this is where John, the apostle, sat. Jesus had his 12, he had his three, he had his one. Because he was operating in space-time. And even at that table, the 12, the three, and the one, it's all designated at that table. But I just want to encourage you with a really amazing thought. Jesus' space-time issue is no longer an issue. (laughs) And so you, dear Mephibosheth, Don't just get to sit at a better table, but you get to sit as his beloved, as the one he loves. And every one of you, we don't have to elbow each other to get to that spot because the table no longer exists in simple space time. You can be the disciple whom Jesus beloves. I think if you'll embrace that at this table, if you are a Christian and you want to come and embrace the fact that he has befriended you, He has made a friendship with you when none could have possibly existed. You certainly weren't looking for it. And I think you walk out of here and say, now I want to be that friend. God's empowering grace will be with you. Let me pray and then you come and partake. Lord God, we love you and are grateful for pursuing us out of obedience to the Father. And we pray, God, that you would now, as we partake in this table, rejoice that you have made us friends with God. God, let that friendship continue to grow and may that friendship overflow into the way we interact with other people. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.